0: This is Spotlight, a Charity and Security Network podcast, a deep dive into how U.S. national security measures impact nonprofit organizations around the world. Welcome to Spotlight. I'm your host, Zach Tyler. This episode, we will be exploring the origins of the Charity and Security Network and what it means to work at the intersection of nonprofit rights and national security. To put simply, we are an issue-based organization that addresses the negative impact U.S. counterterrorism laws have on nonprofit organizations around the world. To help us understand this intersection, I interviewed the Charity and Security Network's founder and director, Kay Ganane. Kay is a lawyer and has spent her entire career advocating for nonprofit organizations. When I asked why it is important to protect civil society, this is what she had to say
1: civil society is basically essential to the functioning of democracy. You can have three branches of government, but without uh, a vibrant, strong, functioning civil society, democracy can't function properly. Because the nonprofit organizations are the vehicle that people use to be effective and influencing government and to making their voices heard. Beyond the ballot box, there's a lot that needs to happen for democracy to function, and that happens through organizations. It can be your neighborhood association. It can be um, your local, your religious congregation. It can be a, a issue-based group or a charity that serves a community, but whatever it is, it, those Entities are the vehicles through which people express their democratic rights, whether it's the right of expression or assembly, and even joining a group is an expression of the right of association. So fundamental First Amendment rights uh, are all expressed through nonprofit organizations. And so those rights need to be protected.
0: So what led her to founding the Charity and Security Network? An organization that focuses on counterterrorism laws as it relates to nonprofit organizations. After the 9 11 terrorist attacks, there was a wave of broad, sweeping anti terrorism policies. Government measures meant to prevent another attack led to mass surveillance, the use of torture, and comprehensive banking laws meant to stop terrorist financing. Some of these broad measures were used against nonprofit organizations, nine of which were, were shut down by the US. They were also labeled particularly vulnerable to terrorist abuse. Case saw the need to protect the civil society space.
1: After 9 11 and passage of the Patriot Act, uh, we had to add uh, a strong component of addressing the many threats to rights that, that emerged. And that included. Uh, The shutdown uh, of charities based in the U.S. and the freezing of their assets without any meaningful right of appeal. Uh, It included expanded surveillance rights, which uh, we know historically surveillance has been used to to quell political dissent in the United States. And so there's a a big concern about that. And that concern remains to this day. Uh, There also concerns about that emerged uh, through the use of rendition, torture, and, and other uh, human rights violations that were part of the response to 9-11, and it was non-profit organizations that were responding to that and advocating against those things. And so uh, their rights also had to be protected.
0: The huge rise in Islamophobia after 9-11 fueled the targeting of Muslim charities by the U.S. Treasury Department as potential threats for terrorist financing. This was done through the Patriot Act. And
1: one of the first things we needed to look at was the shutdown of uh, Muslim charities by the Treasury Department in a way that impacted the work and a way that that um, uh, threatened the entire sector. Basically, what the Patriot Act uh, allowed the Treasury Department to do is to uh, declare a U.S. charity um, as a subject of investigation into whether or not they supported terrorism. And with that uh, investigation pending, they could freeze all the assets and seize the physical property of, of the charity uh, with no immediate Recourse to the charity. The rules only allow the charity as treasury to reconsider its decision. There's no timelines for treasury to do that. There's no um, criteria that or that they have to tell the nonprofit uh, to be met. There's, they don't even have to give reasons uh, for their action. No in-person uh, meeting for the charity to explain itself. Uh, or even answer the allegations if they can find out what the allegations are.
0: I asked Kay why nonprofits were targeted by counterterrorism measures.
1: That's a really good question because uh, there's no real justification for it. Uh, there. There were a lot of uh, areas where people or programs were put under the microscope, so to speak, or subject to um, newer, more draconian legal restrictions. And But for nonprofit organizations, the Treasury Department had uh, decided that nonprofits were a significant mm-hmm. source of terrorist Financing is the way they put it. They saw especially Muslim charities as a major threat and they believed that money was a lifeblood of terrorism. Basically, they, the strategic thinking that went in behind the Patriot Act um, has some very problematic assumptions about what causes terrorism and, and what uh, what their response should be. And for example, just that Statement of President Bush that money is a lifeblood of terrorism completely ignores the fact that people don't go out and engage in terrorism because it's, it's a higher paying job than doing something else. It's not about money that way. Terrorism is caused by Uh, multiple factors, including uh, poor governance and hopelessness in places where people live, violations of human rights, corruption, um, uh, uh, colonialism, Uh, a lot of factors go into it. And fortunately, over the last 20 years, more and more people come to understand the real drivers of terrorism much more clearly. But at the time of 9-11, there there was a big lack of understanding about what was driving terrorism and therefore how to respond to it. Uh, So nonprofits were uh, a focus because, in part, because... uh, nonprofit organizations are the ones that go in and provide humanitarian assistance with, uh democracy building, development, human rights protections in areas of conflict. And, and the, the Bush administration perceived that as a, as a threat.
0: Kay saw that nonprofits were put under undue pressure from the Treasury Department, mostly because there was a misunderstanding of both terrorism and the nonprofit sector itself.
1: Uh, Just to give an example of how problematic they were, um, they Treasury obviously did not consult with the IRS tax-exempt regulators because a lot of the standards that they were including were inconsistent with IRS rules for charities. But they also got so granular. They said uh, that a nonprofit should not allow a board member to participate in a meeting by conference call. And I know this is 2002, not the Zoom era, but it was still uh, way overboard uh, and had no connection at all to preventing terrorist financing.
0: Over the course of several years, a coalition of organizations worked to shift the perception of nonprofits as vulnerable to terrorist abuse and to protect their due process rights. It was slow work. Additional Muslim charities were shut down. A new focus on the prohibition of material support of terrorism impacted many nonprofits that needed to access civilian populations that were in proximity to listed terrorist groups. It is there that U.S. counterterrorism policies inhibited the ability of peace building, humanitarian, and development organizations to serve populations that needed support the most.
1: The spillover effects on operations, particularly um, in Groups that operate programs overseas and in conflict zones and places where terrorist groups may be present and where their humanitarian assistance and other programs are desperately needed, um, that we needed to provide protection and safeguards for these programs legally. So we decided to form a charity and security network to be uh, the hub to support the ongoing coalition work in this area and to provide a dedicated staff time to work on it. So uh, that's what the Charity Security Network did. It was formed in 2009, and the advisory board uh, reflects the organizations that um, had worked on these issues and were the leaders throughout the uh, time after 9-11.
0: One of the key issues that the Charity and Security Network addresses now stems from the Supreme Court ruling in the Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project case in 2010. Under U.S. law, it is illegal to provide material support to listed terrorist organizations. This Supreme Court case expanded the interpretation of material support to include training, expert advice, and assistance, even when such training is intended to get listed terrorist groups to lay down their arms. This now meant that U.S. organizations or citizens could face criminal charges for teaching nonviolent methods of conflict resolution to listed terrorist groups or engaging them in peace talks. In a press release regarding the ruling, David Cole, an attorney representing the HLP, said, quote, This statute is so sweeping that it treats human rights advocates as criminal terrorists and threatens them with 15 years in prison for advocating nonviolent means to resolve disputes. In our view, the First Amendment does not permit the government to make advocating human rights or other lawful peacebuilding activities a crime simply because it is done for the benefit of, or in conjunction with, a group the Secretary of State has blacklisted. End quote. Ten years after this court decision, many nonprofit peacebuilding organizations are struggling with the repercussions. This is what Kay had to say. Uh,
1: it, basically prior to that decision. Uh, it was not considered material support of terrorism for a peace building organization to act as a neutral convener in a peace process to provide armed groups with the training and support they would need to participate in a peace process. Um, and that, that sort of, that sort of activity or even to uh, teach them how to use legal proceedings to assert uh, their, their claims of human rights violations. Um, so in that case, uh, the humanitarian law project wanted to work with the PKK in Turkey and the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka to uh, help them. Uh, engage in, in advocacy in legal forums, in, including at the UN.
0: The root causes of conflict and terrorism are often nuanced societal grievances that require attention. Unfortunately, US law does not reflect that knowledge. By excluding one or more parties to the conflict in nonviolent peacebuilding activities, these grievances cannot be properly addressed. In the past, historic moments like the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in North Ireland, and the end of apartheid in South Africa would not have been possible without engaging the Irish Republican Army or the African National Congress, both listed terrorist organizations at the time. However, the impact of counterterrorism law on nonprofits is not limited to peacebuilding activity. In 2011, a year after the Holder v. Humanitarian Law Project ruling, the impact of U.S. counterterrorism law on humanitarian aid was in the spotlight.
1: Then the next year was the famine in Somalia with another blow uh, because the U.S. government pulled funding, uh, most of its funding out of of the UN food program and limited uh, access to uh, areas controlled by al-Shabaab in Somalia, which uh, is a listed terrorist group and basically treating any. Uh, negotiations with Al-Shabaab in order to access civilians in need of assistance uh, as support for terrorism. And the outcome was horrific, uh level of, of death from that famine with uh, a quarter of a million people dying, many of them um, children under the age of five. It, it, it was a real uh, stain on the U.S., uh, reputation.
0: I asked Kay over the past 10 years, where have the victories been? One key victory for nonprofits occurred with the Financial Action Task Force, known as the FATF.
1: The Financial Action Task Force is a 35-member state uh, program that aims at addressing money laundering terrorist financing. And they had a recommendation on nonprofits that was initially pushed by the U.S. after 9-11 that treated nonprofits that claimed that we are particularly vulnerable to terrorist abuse, again, without evidence um, or justification. And that was resulting in very harsh restrictions on nonprofits in uh, well over 100 countries. And in many cases, this was uh, over compliance uh, with an international standard, but and also, in many cases, it was repressive governments using this as a tool to um, to re- further restrict civil society in their countries. And so, this report uh, uh, was hugely important. And to its everlasting credit, the FATF. Did not reject the findings. Instead, what they expressed concern, they did not like their efforts to counter terrorist financing being used for repression, and they did not like uh, over regulation that was restricting important work. And so they, in 2013, uh, began engaging with the nonprofit sector and what to security network and uh, organizations in Europe formed a coalition of nonprofits to engage directly with FATF on this. The result of that engagement was in 2016, FATF revised their standard on nonprofits. They took out that problematic language and created a new standard that's saying governments should take a risk-based approach that is proportionate to the threat and does not unduly disrupt the activities of legitimate organizations, and so that is the international standard now. The U.S. is out of line with it still, um, but that is the international standard, and it's been uh, recognized uh, in, in. This language adopted, and incorporated in places like uh, the U.N. Uh, Security Council resolutions. So that that was a big moment.
0: Today, the FATF and the U.S. Department of Treasury both recognize that the vast majority of U.S. nonprofits are low risk for terrorist financing. This change in thinking shows a shift by policymakers towards a risk based approach. This recognition of the need for a risk based approach to address terrorist financing was a major victory for nonprofits. The risk based approach re- rejects a one size fits all approach to nonprofits and recommends that bank regulators, as well as financial institutions, adopt measures that are proportionate to the actual risks.
1: So the other key moment was passage of the Global Fragility Act in December last year, in 2019, which begins to take a a new approach. And this was a bipartisan bill, uh, was signed by President Trump, and it reflected understanding that we need to address the actual driver's of extremism uh, and terrorism, and of violent extremism, I should say, and, and terrorism, and determine what they are. Use evidence. Do things that are effective, and not just try to bomb our way out of this problem, or just and keep imposing harsher and harsher sanctions uh, in areas where terrorist groups operate uh, that don't. Uh, hurt the groups, but do hurt the civilian populations in those areas.
0: Despite these victories, there are still many challenges for nonprofits. The lack of clear and adequate exemptions to the material support prohibition continues to be problematic for both aid delivery and peacebuilding work.
1: the The problem that remains, and why I said the U.S. still is not in line with the with the international standard, is that the material support definition has not changed and the threat of being shut down by Treasury uh, and have all assets frozen has not changed. So we remain uh, under threat of uh, abuse of these broad powers for political reasons or whatever reason there might be. And as long as that's the case, the measures that we have are not proportionate to the threat. We, we know, Treasury said, the sector as a whole is at low risk, and organizations that work in conflict areas uh, take me- measures to mitigate uh, threat of terrorist financing. So, our the existing laws on the books are completely disproportionate to the threat, and they do disrupt activities of legitimate organizations. So that part of it really needs to be addressed. The other factor is international humanitarian law. The Geneva Conventions and the protocols that have adopted to support them uh, have standards that are supposed to protect uh, aid to civilians in areas of armed conflict, including conflict that's not between states, but between non-state armed groups and states, or even just between different non-state armed groups. But where there is armed conflict, civilians are supposed to be protected and have rights to protection and assistance, and organizations that are neutral in the conflict and do not discriminate on the basis uh, of uh, political affiliation or other factors are supposed to be able to access those civilians. And, and offer their services. So that means if you have to talk to um, Hamas or Al-Shabaab or the Camel Tigers or any other group in order to access civilians living under their control, that's a right protected by international humanitarian law, but it's a, a right that is not respected in US law. It, 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 if you have to pay a utility bill uh, or a tax or a toll uh, in order to access civilians right now, that could be a violation of U.S. law. And those kind of minimal and incidental transactions need need to, uh, as a matter of uh, uh, the realities of o- operations on the ground, you need to be able to engage in those minimal transactions in order to access civilians. So uh, the U.S. has a ways to go in terms of bringing its It's laws uh, into line with international humanitarian law, as well as the FATF recommendation.
0: Moving forward, I asked Kay on what she saw as the biggest challenge in addressing longstanding counterterrorism issues that undermine nonprofit effectiveness. This is what she had to say.
1: The challenge that comes to mind, I think, is overcoming the political fears. Yes. Public officials have about doing anything that might be perceived as relaxing the rules, uh, the counterterrorism rules. And, and it has less to do with, uh, any actual, uh, threat of terrorist abuse. And it has to do with, uh, public officials and, and elected officials wanting to keep their jobs, which It's a hard, sounds like a harsh thing to say, but I I think in the end, that's often what we run into. Uh, People will agree with us, but nobody wants to be the one to step forward and say, I'm going to help uh, these organizations in this situation. There have been a few, um, including Representative Chris Smith uh, and Jim McGovern, who introduced the Humanitarian Assistance Facilitation Act back in 2013 but uh, their colleagues did not step forward and support them.
0: What we do know about policy change in Washington, D.C. is that it moves slowly, especially when it comes to national security. Hopefully, with the passing of the Global Fragility Act in 2019 and a greater awareness that many of the counterterrorism policies of the 9-11 era are counterproductive, there is a chance for policy reform that empowers nonprofits to build peace operate in regions with listed terrorist organizations. In the meantime, Charity and Security Network will continue to advocate for change that both protects and empowers nonprofits to achieve their charitable missions without being restricted by national security policy. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. And please tell your coworkers or any friends you think might be interested in the topic. We are truly grateful for your support. Next episode, we will speak with Hazem Rahawi, a Syrian who has worked in various humanitarian roles serving his country for the last 10 years. I ask him about how U.S. policy has impacted his work. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.